As I was starting to say before, this is really my favorite time of year. Do you guys like this time of year? This is a great time of year, isn't it? We don't need cold weather and we don't need snow because it's Christmas. I'm always so happy this time of year, but I'm always so unprepared for this time of year. Like, it just seems to roll around so quickly, doesn't it? Like, when, when you're in the heat of summer, you know, July, August, and you go out of your house and you go, oh, how is this possible? Like, how is it possible? It's like the sun feels like it dropped to about there. Like, it used to be way high in the sky, and then during the summer, it's right in front of your face. But you walk around during that time of year, and you're like, Christmas is a million years away. And then it's here, right? Are you noticing that kind of the older you get, the faster the years start to go? I think that's a function of being a grown-up. I, I remember being a student, and I was a student for a really long time, and I remember thinking at the beginning of a semester that 18 weeks was an eternity. Like, oh my gosh, I have to make it through this semester. And now, March 20 of 20, March 2020, when, when COVID started, two and a half years ago, didn't it feel like it just like yesterday we lost all that time, it went so quickly. Anyway, it's during this time of year that I get to talk about my favorite story or my favorite event in the entire Bible, and that's the Christmas story. And even before I became a Jesus follower, even before I went to God and I told him, Heavenly Father, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I can't save myself, so I need a savior. I know that out of your love, you sent your son, Jesus, to be that savior. So God, I want to turn from my sin and turn to Jesus who paid the penalty for my sin with his life and then came back from the dead. Whenever somebody predicts his own death and then comes back from the dead, he's worth a listen, don't you think? And I said to God, I want to come back to you. I want to come to you. I know Jesus is going to return one day and usher in God's kingdom here on earth. God, I promise you that from this day forward, I'll follow Jesus with my life. I'll devote every day from this point forward to him. But even before I prayed that prayer, I knew the basics of the Christmas story. I guess most people in the West know the basics of the Christmas story, right? Nearly everybody knows the story of an unlikely pregnancy involving a virgin. We know the story of the inhospitable inn and the manger and the star and some shepherds and a few wise men and, of course, the baby. You can't walk around in a mall or a town square without seeing a manger scene, without at least getting some idea of what Christmas is about. And surveys tell us that even people who think of themselves as Christians think that even though it's a, a cute story or even a beloved story, it's really a tough story to believe. And you've probably heard the objections. I've heard the objections to the story. There's no way that actually happened. Come on, the word in Hebrew, Alma, doesn't even mean virgin. It means young maiden, which means virgin. But anyway... I've heard, oh, come on, there's no magic star. 
And who were these wise men anyway? And I've also heard people argue that the Christmas story is just a reverse engineered myth. I've heard people say the Christmas story, the story of Jesus is like shooting an arrow at the tree and then painting the bullseye around it and saying it was a perfect shot. And I understand the skepticism. I really do. Because if we're being candid, we have to admit that believing in all of it is a very tough ask. Even before I met Jesus, though I was never really a true skeptic, I was never a true skeptic, not, not because I didn't believe in Jesus, mind you, it's just because I never paid attention to any of this story. I never really bothered to decide whether it was true or not because it didn't apply to me. But even back then, I found the story pretty unbelievable. But once I became a believer and I learned the actual origins of the Christmas story, I found something out, and I'm going to share that with you today. The Christmas story encompasses so much more than just the night of Jesus' birth. This is so much better of a story. The real Christmas story is so much richer and so much more believable than people could ever imagine. Now, when it comes specifically to what I'm going to call the birth narrative, and by the way, birth narrative is more or less pastor shorthand for the story of Jesus' birth. When it comes to that story in and of itself, only two out of the four Gospels make any mention of it. Only Matthew and Luke make a mention of the Christmas story. Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel are silent on the event. It's interesting, over the last 2,000 years, scholars have debated why is that? Why don't they say anything? Of course, they can't come up with an answer, so we're not going to really talk about it. But while the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke are absolutely amazing, the story of Jesus' birth is really much, much more than the birth narratives. And that makes the story even more miraculous. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next three weeks in our series entitled, Who Needs Christmas? So, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here this morning with open hearts and minds. Thank you for this time of year, the most wonderful time of the year. Thank you for this community of loving people that you're building here at Hammock Street. Thank you for your word, the Bible, which you've given us to guide us, to help us through this life. God, as we take a look at the Bible, as we begin to understand the story of Christmas, Use it to shape us and mold us and draw us closer to you. God, we love you and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so now on to the Christmas story. Now, contrary to what most people think, the Christmas story does not begin with a young couple trying to figure out how they got pregnant. The Christmas story actually begins with a couple that's worried that they'll never get pregnant. The Christmas story doesn't begin with a couple trying to determine where are we going to have this baby. The Christmas story actually begins with a couple that's pretty sure they're never going to have any baby at all. The Christmas story doesn't begin with the angels' announcements that we read in Matthew and Luke. The Christmas story begins in the beginning, in the book called beginnings. In the Hebrew, the word is Bereshit. We know this book as the book of Genesis. 
In Genesis, God made a promise that at the time he made it seemed not only impossible, but must have made absolutely no sense to the man to whom he made it. Yet it was this promise that set the miracle of Christmas in motion. It was this promise that makes the Christmas story so believable. Do you find that intriguing? I'm glad, because we're going to have a look. Now, the promise to which I'm referring can be found in Genesis chapter 12. It was made 2,100 years before Jesus was born. So I want to set up the context now. Genesis, along with the next four books of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were written by a man named Moses in about 3400 B.C. Since then, those books of Moses have been carefully and faithfully copied by hand by meticulously trained scholars called in Hebrew sofarim. We know them as scribes. We read a bit about the scribes in the New Testament. Now, these books together make up the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament. The Jewish people refer to those books as the Torah, or the books of the law. For sake of completeness, the Jews also include in their Hebrew Bible books called the Nevi'im, which are the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and so on, and the books called the Ketuvim, which are the writings, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, books like that. And they refer to the whole book by the acronym Tanakh. So Torah, Ta, Nevi'im, Na, Kituvim, Ka, Tanakh. That's why it's an acronym. Now, in the early 300s AD, just to round out this Bible history, these books, uh, there were books of the New Testament that were added to these Old Testament or Hebrew Bible books, and the book that we all know as the Bible was born. It's actually, we've talked about this before, the Bible's not one book, it's a compilation of a lot of different writings, some letters, some books, some songs, some poems, things like that. In the 400 AD, in the 400s AD, all these writings were translated into Latin and compiled into a book referred to as the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. And so if you came from a Catholic background, you've heard of the Latin Vulgate. That happened in about 400 AD. All right, enough of that background. Back to Genesis. In Genesis, Moses carefully recorded the story of how the Jewish nation began. And it's in this beginning that we find how Christmas began as well. So let's go to our first verse, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So in this first verse, we see God's calling upon a man named Abram. Abram was just this random guy who lived in kind of a random place called Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans, which is a city located in the region of Sumer in southern Mesopotamia. You've heard all these words before. You probably have no idea where any of these things are. This is a region that is now considered part of the modern country of Iraq. Now, in Hebrew, the name Abram means exalted father. Now, most of you probably know this, but God would later change Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. So for clarity's sake, I'm just going to call him Abraham from this point forward. But it doesn't change for a little while here. Just know that. 
Now, this verse, Genesis 12:1, is significant because in it we see how God reached down into time and space and chose a man through whom God would carry out a great reclamation project founded on faith. And before we move on, I want you to take note of this. The thing that God asked Abraham to do here is a really big deal. Like, we read through these things quickly, and we don't think about, gosh, what must that have been like? But it's a really big deal. You see, in those days, it wasn't just an emotional thing to leave one's family and one's people. Both my sons have moved away to different corners of the country. I have one living in New York, one living in L.A. It was very emotional, but they're still living in the United States. It wasn't that big of a thing. But in those days, leaving your family and leaving your people was a life and death thing. See, in those days, people who were without family typically didn't live very long. Because you had nobody protecting you. You had nobody taking care of you. You had nobody who cared about you. Well, God not only asked Abraham to leave his family, he asked him to leave his family and go off into the unknown. All right, so he's leaving his family, his support system, his protection system, his provision system, and he's going somewhere. He has no idea where he's going. God said, go, and while you're on your way, I will tell you where you're going to end up. That on its own took a lot of faith. But then God made Abraham a promise, and here's what he said. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Now, at the time that Abraham received this promise from God, Abraham had no children. Oh, and also, he had no children, and he was about 75 years old. So, upon hearing God's promise, we have to believe that Abraham was kind of skeptical. I'm going to make you a great nation? A great nation? How is, I don't have any kids. Like, how is that going to happen? And God's promises weren't done. You see, God also promised to make Abraham's name great, which means he was going to make Abraham famous. And again, Abraham had to be wondering, and how is that going to happen? I'm from Ur. I'm from a word that you use when you can't think of another word. Ur. And also, God said that Abraham would be a blessing. A blessing? Now, see, this one wasn't only confusing. It didn't even make any sense. Abraham lived in a very, very violent world. And and, and we know this. You see, when we read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, we, we get a snapshot of what this violent world looked like. You've probably noticed that the Old Testament is just filled with violence and bloodshed. I have this conversation with lots of people about our loving God. Well, what about the Old Testament? But in that world, people were just trying to save their own skins. People were most definitely not thinking about how to bless somebody else. They simply didn't have that luxury. But notwithstanding, God told Abraham that he was going to bless others. So confusing to Abraham. God continues, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. So then God doubles down on the whole blessing thing. He assures Abraham that the blessing that God had just promised would not only be for the present moment, but would keep on going. As time goes on, there are going to be people who bless you, and I'm going to return that by blessing them. 
And there'll be per people who curse you, <laughs> and in turn, I'm going to curse them. But God was just getting started. Then he took things to an unforeseeable, wholly incredible, basically impossible extreme. God promised Abraham a nobody from nowhere that ultimately all the people in the world, in the entire world, would be blessed by him. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's a long-term promise. Every people group, every tribe, every clan, every gathering of families, every single person in the world would be blessed through Abraham? This makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. And now, this is another one of those instances where an awareness of that culture helps us with our understanding. And we talk about this a lot. It's really important that when we look at scripture, we don't just read it thinking, okay, this is what's happening here in America in 2022. We think, hmm, this is an ancient document happening on another continent in another place with other people long, long ago. So we have to understand the culture that we're reading about. See, today, we're accustomed to one culture helping or blessing another culture, aren't we? I looked this up. Since January 2021, for example, our country, the United States, has given the country of Ukraine nearly $20 billion in aid. We don't even think twice about that. We really don't. You may go, oh, interesting, but that's about it. And then, every year, the United States gives billions and billions more dollars to other foreign countries. But stuff like that never happened during Abraham's day. Countries didn't bless each other. Nations conquered each other. Nations enslaved other nations. Nations plundered other nations. And yet, even though Abraham couldn't see how God would fulfill his promise, given the fact that he was 75 years old and had no children, and certainly wouldn't be around to see whether a great nation would rise from his line, Genesis tells us that Abraham chose to believe God's unbelievable promise. We jump ahead at just a few chapters just to get this. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, as you might know, Abraham and his wife Sarai, who God's changed the name to Sarah, so Abraham and Sarah, did eventually have a son whose name was Isaac. And Isaac had a son whose name was Jacob. Isaac also had another son that we're not really going to talk about whose name was Esau. But in an amazing act of family dysfunction, Jacob deceived his brother Esau into giving up his right to inherit from their father Isaac. Anyway, Jacob went on to have 12 sons, 10 of whom hated their younger brother Joseph so much that they decide to throw him into a well and ultimately to sell him into slavery so they can make a little money off him. Anyway, Joseph, sold into slavery, finds himself in Egypt, and before too long, Joseph's entire family, including those rotten ten brothers who sold him into slavery, joined him in Egypt, and they did eventually become a nation as God had promised. But they didn't exactly become a blessing nation. They became a slave nation. And for around 400 years, Abraham's descendants, the people through whom God had promised to bless the world, lived in Egypt as slaves. 
As you might imagine, as slaves, they weren't feeling very blessed. And they most definitely were not in a position to bless anyone else. Well, then history moves on after about 400 years when the people were probably thinking, eh, it's pretty clear that our being a blessing to all the nations is just never going to come true. God sent a deliverer. And that guy's name was Moses. And though we're not going to go through the whole story, suffice to say that after all the things that God did to Egypt through Moses, turning the water into blood, sending locusts, killing the firstborn babies of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, and then killing all the Egyptians when they went in, nobody in Egypt was feeling all that blessed by Abraham's descendants. Now, after they crossed the Red Sea, they eventually entered into the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land that God had promised. Of course, they entered after they slaughtered all the previous residents of the land, the Canaanites, who undoubtedly were not feeling very blessed by the descendants of Abraham either. Now, reading about all the blood and gore in the Old Testament, we ask ourselves, how is this the story of God? How is this brutality the story of our loving God? Well, the easy answer is, their world was a much more violent place than ours. Because we, here in the West, in the 21st century, we find that level of violence so offensive because we live on the other side of Christmas. And as a result, we look at the world in a very different way. We'll talk about that later. Anyhow, all of that background was a necessary part of the journey to God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. During the thousand years after God made his promise, let's review what happened. Abraham, or Abram became Abraham. Abraham had a family. The family became a nation, and the nation became a kingdom. So now we're going to fast forward about 14 generations to Abraham's direct lineal descendant. That's a lawyer term that basically says someone had a son who 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 had a son. Bam, direct lineal descendant. And this is a guy named David. David became the king of Israel. And as king, David went around and entered into peace treaties with all the surrounding peoples. And because David was known as the warrior king, and if you remember a few weeks ago, we finished up a series on David. Go back and review that if you like we know that Israel became a powerful nation. And this positioned the descendants of Abraham for the very first time to make a significant impact in the world. Okay, maybe they would become a blessing nation someday. Well, David was succeeded by his son Solomon, and Solomon was known as the builder king. And he was the wisest man on earth, the wisest man God ever created. And Solomon expanded Israel's reach to the point where people from all over the world came to Israel to see for themselves Solomon's temple and also to sit at Solomon's feet to learn from Solomon's wisdom. Under Solomon, Israel became powerful and wealthy and was finally beginning to look like Israel could indeed one day become a blessing to the world. But that didn't happen. Because instead of blessing the world, Solomon chose to marry the daughters of the surrounding nations, and he chose to abandon his God and worship their gods. And so in response, God kept another promise, not his promise to Abraham, but his promise to Solomon. So God had promised Solomon this in 1 Kings 9, verse 6. 
But if you ever turn away from me, but if you, Solomon, ever turn away from me, God, and decide to serve and worship other gods, then I will remove Israel from the land I have given them. I will abandon this temple I have consecrated with my presence, and Israel will be mocked and ridiculed among all the nations. This temple will become a heap of ruins. Well, after Solomon died, Israel was divided into the northern kingdom, named Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah. And this division greatly weakened the Jewish nations. It's not easy to have a divided house, right? American history buffs, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And as a result, for the next 300 years, both Jewish kingdoms, Israel and Judah, fell into disarray. So Israel had the opportunity to be a blessing, but it lost its opportunity to be a blessing and became incapable of even blessing itself. But during that time, God sent a prophet. Remember what prophets do. Prophets speak on behalf of God. So God sent a prophet to speak to the people. The prophet's name was Isaiah. And Isaiah recorded his prophecy, which we can read about in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, in a book named for him, the book of Isaiah. So around the mid-700s B.C., through Isaiah, God once again told his people this. Isaiah 49.6. I will also make you... God's people, a light for the Gentiles. Remember, the Gentiles comes from the Hebrew word goyim, which just refers to people from all the other nations, nations other than the nation of Israel. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God said, I will make it so that all people from all the nations of the world will look to you, the people of God. Now, the descendants of Abraham hearing this must have thought this was some kind of cruel joke. They weren't even capable of being their own light, let alone a light to all the other nations of the world. And salvation? They're thinking, we can't even save ourselves. (laughs) But things got even worse. Not too long after that, in about 721 BC, the Assyrian nation invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and took them off into captivity. And then, around 597 B.C., the Babylonians, under King Nebuchadnezzar, invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, and they tore down Solomon's temple, just as God God had promised Solomon. Incidentally, that is the Western Wall, also known as the Wailing Wall. It's the only part of that temple that was left standing, and it serves as a reminder of what once was. Anyway, the Babylonians took captive Judah's smartest and most important citizens. You guys remember Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And they left only ruins in their wake. There was nothing of the nation of Abraham's descendants left. There was no military. There was no economy. There was no power. And there was no influence. But during the years that followed that, God sent another prophet. The prophet Malachi. Or as my Italian friends like to say, the Italian prophet, Malachi. Anyway, and Malachi gave to God's people this message from God. Once again, God said, my name will be great among the nations. And when the people heard the words from Malachi, they must have thought, seriously? You're still doing this? This has been going on for hundreds of years. I mean, sure, we'd like to believe you. I mean, we hope what you're saying is true, but we just don't see it. I mean, 
It's like what you do with your kids, you know, when they don't play really well in a soccer game and they lose and you give them a pep talk. You know, you're a really good player anyway and you're, you're the best smile on the team, right? And they're like, yeah, we appreciate the pep talk, but you don't expect us to believe that, do you? And you stuff to blame them for their skepticism. There was no reason in the world to believe any of this. And they, they certainly couldn't believe that it was coming from the mouth of God. I mean, they had to be thinking, look at us. We're a captive nation. We have nothing to offer. No one's going to want to worship our God. He couldn't even look after us, his own people. Why would anyone think he's capable of looking after them? There's no way his name is going to be great among the nations. The truth is, we're never, ever going to be a blessing to any other nation. And in the near term, unbeknownst to the Hebrew people, it was going to get even worse. Because not very long after that, Alexander the Great came along and he unified all the Greek city-states, if you guys remember your ancient history. And if the Jewish people could have foreseen that, maybe Malachi's words would have made sense about Alexander. Alexander's name would be great among the nations, but not the name of the God of the Hebrews. But Malachi wasn't finished. Malachi said this, from where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me. Remember, he's speaking on behalf of God. Because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, through Malachi, God said, everywhere in the world I will be known. Anywhere in the world where people are worshiping, there will be a group of people who are worshiping me. But the people of Judea just couldn't hear it. I mean, how could they hear it? They'd already been overrun by Assyria and Babylon and Persia. And now the Greeks were coming. And then, if they hadn't already seen enough misfortune, in 63 BC, Rome sent Pompey the Great. And Pompey the Great conquered his way through Israel and through Judah. And he conquered the city of Jerusalem. And he annexed the whole area into the Roman Republic. And when Pompey was inside the city of Jerusalem, he rode his horse up the southern steps of the Temple Mount. By the way, that was a major offense to the Hebrews. And he went into the temple and he slaughtered many of the priests. And then he got off his horse and he walked directly into the middle of the temple to the place where he expected to see the Hebrews' God. He had walked into the Holy of Holies. Now you need to know this, in a pagan temple which is a type of temple Pompey would have been familiar with, a holy space like that would have been the place where the pagans kept their idols, where the pagans kept their representations, their carved representations of their gods. And they would go into that place on their days of celebration, and they would take out those idols, and they would parade them around town so people could worship them. So it's said that Pompey went into the Holy of Holies because he wanted to see this supposedly great god of the Hebrews that they fought so valiantly to defend. But when he got to the Holy of Holies in the temple, the room was empty because the Jews, of course, didn't worship idols. Remember your Ten Commandments. But from a Roman perspective, the Jewish religion was nothing but a joke. And with that, the Roman occupation of what we would call the Holy Land, Judah, Judea, Galilee, Jerusalem, that's where it began. And so it appeared that the descendants of Abraham, it, believed, it appeared to them that God's unbelievable, incoherent, impossible promise 
would end right there. Because they were convinced that after 2,000 years of nothing but degradation and defeat, all the nations in the world would decidedly not be blessed through Abraham. As far as they were concerned, there was simply no way that Israel would ever become a light to the non-Jewish people, become a light to the Gentiles. There was no way that the Jewish God would be worshipped throughout the world because nobody's interested in a God who can't take care of his own people. And that's what makes the story of Christmas so remarkable. Because when things were as hopeless as they could possibly be, when God's promise to Abraham was as out of reach as it could possibly be, the promise was fulfilled. And years after that, the Apostle Paul, looking back and compiling a story, put it this way. Here's what he said in Galatians 4.4. But when the set time had fully come. In other words, when God had everything just the way he wanted it, when God had an expanding empire, the Roman Empire, which exported a common Greek and Roman culture, so everybody in the area had a common culture and a common language. When the Romans had built a highway system that was unlike anything the world had ever known, the Roman roads. When they built a port system that connected all the major population hubs in the region together. And at a time when they had made peace with all the surrounding previously warring nations, it's called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. When at last there was a mechanism, when at last there was a way for God to get the attention of the world and to export the message that was ultimately to bless every nation on the planet. When things were just the way God wanted them, when the set time had fully come, when everyone had lost hope and no one was even thinking anymore that God would fulfill this unbelievable, incoherent, impossible promise to Abraham, when nobody was expecting it, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. This month, all over the world, people are going to tell this story. The virgin's name was Mary. Everyone in the world knows the virgin's name, don't they? And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. No one in that part of the world had felt like God had been with them for a very long time. But the angel kept talking. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And just like that, God's promise to Abraham, God's promise to Mary, was born. Now, this probably made no sense to Mary. But we know what happened. God kept his promise that he had made to Abraham all those years before. God kept his promise to Abraham that through him, every single nation in the world would be blessed. Israel would, in fact, become a light to the Gentiles. From that remote, unimportant part of the world, God sent his son Jesus. And through his life and 
teaching and his death and resurrection, that part of the world became a light. And every year, people from all over visit this place, visit the Holy Land where the light began to shine. The Jewish people did, in fact, become a light to the Gentiles. Many of you, most of you are here today as Gentiles, but you worship a Jewish Savior. And the reason that the Old Testament scriptures are so precious, the reason the Old Testament is combined with the New Testament to form the book that we know of as our Bible, is because the Jewish scripture, the story of the Jewish people, was where the hope and light of the world, where the line of the Savior of the world, whose kingdom would endure forever, was birthed. And the thing that makes the Christmas story so believable is the fact that the story is so remarkable. No one would have made this up. No one could have made this up. It takes too long. It requires too many things to happen. The roots reached out over so many years that so many lost sight of them, but God never lost sight of it. During that entire period of time, God was at work getting the world ready for the thing that he had determined to do the moment that sin entered the world. The Christmas story began 2,000 years before the first Christmas. And the Christmas story continues to unfold 2,000 years after that first Christmas morning. So, who needs Christmas? The answer is simple. God determined that the world needed Christmas. And he worked out the story of Christmas on the world stage using some of the most significant people in history who would later become just footnotes in the story of a Jewish builder that would ultimately change everything. Through Jesus, the Jewish people became a light to the Gentiles. Through Jesus, the Jewish God would be worshipped all over the world. Through him, salvation would come to every nation, every tribe, and every people everywhere. Through Christmas, we're reminded in the most amazing way that God is active, even when it seems like he's not. And that God, even when he's silent, he's not still. And through his remarkable story, we're reminded on another level, on a personal level, that God doesn't just think in terms of nations, but also in terms of individuals. God sent his son not only to be the savior of the world, but to be the savior of you and to be the savior of me in our world. It's a reminder that even when circumstances argue to the contrary, even when you can't see it, oh no, what's happening in the world? Oh, it's all, it's not going to work. It's a reminder that God can be trusted at all times. It's a reminder that even when circumstances make it seem like there's no way possible, God does care, and God is listening, and God will always come through for us because our Heavenly Father keeps his promises. The world needed hope. The world needed the light of the world. The world needed Christmas. And as it turns out, it wasn't just the world that needed Christmas. As it turns out, God needed Christmas as well.
What does that mean? We'll pick up there next week. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what an amazing story. What an amazing start. How you superintended over hundreds and thousands of years. How somebody from nowhere would be the beginning of a line of people that would bless the entire world. God, we're amazed by you. And at this time of year, we get to focus on all of this and give thanks for the fact that even when we don't see it happening, it's happening. Even when we don't see you're moving, you're moving. And even when we've lost hope, you haven't. So God, help us to stay close to you this Christmas season. Help us to think of you every day as we're interacting with people. Help us to be that light that you've called us to be. God, we thank you for this. We thank you for our community and our time together. We love you. We praise you. And we look forward to gathering again in Jesus' name. Amen.